The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Daryl Ray. He is an emeritus professor of agricultural economics at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. He is the former Chair of Excellence, and he is the former Director of the Agricultural Policy and Analysis Center, which had been located at the University of Tennessee. It is now operating independently, and he writes a weekly column with his colleague, Dr. Harwood Schaefer, published weekly at that center or through that center, and it is visited by people all over the world trying to understand agricultural economics. Dr. Ray is the author of hundreds of journal articles. He has delivered over 350 presentations on policy and economic issues to international audiences. He has testified before Congress as part of the debate for each farm bill during the last 20 years. An important portion of his work focuses on the nature of agricultural markets, including non-economic as well as economic and political forces that influence those markets. I heard Dr. Ray speak at a Rural Life Day conference in Columbia, Missouri, and I thought his topic was so fascinating. It was about how agriculture is described and how we understand agriculture globally and locally. So, Dr. Ray, welcome. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be with you. Well, first of all, I wonder if you could help explain, for my benefit as well as our listeners, what does agricultural economics entail? What does a person do as an agricultural economist, and how did you find that line of work of interest? Yes, well, an agricultural economist, I guess, is one that um, applies economic principles to agriculture, but that includes uh, farm management and marketing and, and my specialty, which is policy, but also moves into natural resources and food safety and is it getting broader as time goes on. But I got interested in it in, when I went to college, and it, economics was kind of easy for me. I could kind of put it together and understand the logic that was involved. And I came from a, a farm background. My sister and brother still farm in Iowa. And I started working on the farm when I was 10 years old and had a Ford tractor that, that uh, my dad bought so I could do some things and then just kept working in, in, in agriculture. So I saw it firsthand, and I saw some of the problems that I think um, maybe those that haven't experienced agriculture wouldn't have an opportunity to see. Right. Well, you know, I think that we can all agree that our goals are the same, and that is to have a clean environment to raise a healthy family and also to have quality food. But there's so much more than individual consumer choice at a supermarket or even better, a farmer's market if we have access to one. But there are so many factors from a policy perspective and an economic perspective that I think most of us don't understand, myself included, which is why I thought it would be so important to bring you on the program. What do you want our listeners to know about 
the kinds of policies and economics that make a difference in terms of the quality of food that we put on our plates? Well, you know, there are lots of different ways to slice this and to talk about it. But first of all, I always like to talk about how different agriculture is from other commodities just to start out. Yeah. We buy numerous things for ourselves and our families, but there are a lot of things that we don't really have to buy, or we don't have to buy it today, or we don't have to buy it this year. That's not the case for food, where we must buy it as a biological need. And if you think of it internationally, it's really a national security issue. Folks that are responsible for feeding their populace are doing a service to the country, and the leaders of that want to make sure that that's done. So food is different, I argue. And it's not just that aspect, but it does relate to the idea that no matter whether prices are high for food, you know, in quotes, or prices are low, people have to have about the same amount of food. And so that means it's fairly inelastic in economics terms, which means that the quantity that is demanded off the market stays about the same even when prices are very low. And that's not the case generally for other commodities. I mean, if the price of a particular product goes down 50% or whatever, some really large number, more consumers will go ahead and buy it. And producers will say, holy smoke, I can't afford to produce it at that low price, and so they'll produce less. And then there's there's a rebalancing of the market, and it comes back at a fairly reasonable level very quickly. But in the case of agriculture, like we say, the quantity demanded doesn't change very much. And I would argue that the, the quantity supplied by the producers doesn't change very much in the short run either. Farmers want to use their land. They have to make sure that they produce as much as they can using the latest resources and, and technologies and that kind of thing so that even with the price declines, they're going to do everything they can to stay in business next year. Whereas many other firms would say, okay, I'm going to cut my production by 20%. And they represent a fairly large share of the community market that, that they can actually increase the, the price by doing so. So there's a lot of difference, I think, between aggregate food. I mean, food in total, not just particular things like apples or potatoes, but the amount of food that we eat that is quite different from other kinds of commodities. And, and as a result, it's very easy for agriculture to be depressed and have low prices for a number of years. And that's where the policy aspect comes into it. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things that I like to bring to, to audiences is helping to understand that. Right. Well, I love that you grew up on a farm because you have witnessed the changes in agriculture over the decades. Whereas I'm sure when you were growing up, the rural communities, the rural landscape looked a lot different in terms of biodiversity and numbers of farms. At least that's what farmers tell me. But farmers were pressured to increase production, to increase yields, to get big or get out. And that changed the rural landscape. Talk to me a little bit about what led to that change or that shift in philosophy of how we produce our food. You're exactly right. When I was growing up, we had a five-year rotation on our land where we would have oats, for example, and hay after that, and then corn and soybeans, and maybe corn again and start over. And we had hogs, we had cattle, we had chickens. 
And now, in the area where I grew up, they have two crops. They have soybeans and they have corn. And some farmers only grow one or the other, usually corn. And most farmers don't have any livestock at all. And if they do have livestock, they specialize in one of them, like, you know, hogs or, or cattle. And they're tremendously large, much larger than when we were growing up. And so, as you say, the nature of agriculture uh, on the ground has changed tremendously. And there are a lot of things that work here. You know, the technology, we have machines that come on board that can do more and uh, not need as much labor, and that's obviously an important one. But I think, too, that back in about the 70s, when we had a run-up in prices, farmers were able to make enough money with major crops that they didn't have to have livestock. And as a result, they pulled the fences and they expanded their output. And then along with these technological advances, which included, you know, better pesticides as well as machinery, it just fed on itself. And consumers were getting, you know, more food at lower prices, and they were very accepting of the technologies. I, I argue that now it's kind of come around the other direction where, Consumers have concerns about how their food is grown, which I think is good. And I think that over time we're going to see, I wouldn't say necessarily a reversal in that in that approach, but I think that there will definitely be less emphasis on commercial agriculture to the extent of, you know, ever increasing its size and increasing production. And in, in the place of that, be thinking more about what the consumer actually wants and in and thinking about the quality of the product. Exactly. They want, or we want, high-quality food, and I'm sure you do as well. I think that these are the common denominators of our food system, is people want high-quality, good-tasting food, which often relates to food being fresh and locally grown. And I believe it was during your presentation where you showed the enormous increase in local farmers' markets, which have, in some extent, been led by policies that support those local markets. Yes, and I think that we shouldn't underestimate the power that the consumer has in moving agriculture in that direction. And it's manifest in, in like you say, the availability of, of farmer markets and CSAs, and also, if you go to your, in, in our case, if you go to your local chain grocery store, there's more and more space that is devoted to organics and to food quality issues than there was a few years ago. And you hear fast food operations that are talking about the meat is being produced on the farms and free of antibiotics and cage-free and and all of that is coming from the consumer, really. They're responding to what the consumer wants. So I think the future is going to be driven to a much larger extent on how the consumer wants to address the food issues than it has in my lifetime. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point. And it's inspirational for our listeners to know that on days when we feel largely powerless within this larger political system, that it really does pay to ask grocers for what we want and to mobilize as communities to have community garden plots. You know, I see these urban gardens going around the country with such vigor just to meet that demand for local food. So I'm glad you mentioned that. But I do want to talk about what we see from the 
larger farmer's perspective. I hear that commodity farmers aren't doing so well. And one of the points you made in your presentation was how farmers were promised a big export market. And then you showed this incredibly interesting data showing that U.S. exports are flat. And one of the things that you mentioned early on in our discussion today was that this is a food security issue. So I think that it's very important for us not to depend upon too many imports when it comes to the foods that we need to keep ourselves healthy, fruits and vegetables being a good example. Talk to me about the export-import situation. How much food are we importing now? What kinds of foods? And what's going on to drive that import-export market? Well, there's a lot of issues related to that. You know, there are some foods, of course, that we must import because it's impossible to grow them here and, and have for years, like bananas and so on. Right. And then there's a whole other set of, of products that they're, they're only available seasonally here and, right. and imported so that we can have a, a particular kind of fruit the year-round. So, so that's always part of the mix. But in general, I think there's much more interest internationally, not just in this country, to think about whether or not it's possible to grow the food themselves. And part of the development process in the past has been, if we're helping them, if the U.S. is providing some support, is to essentially make them dependent, you might say, on us exporting food to them. And we are. I think there's been a, a turnaround in this idea that now it's really important to get the folks to produce as much of their own food as they can. Now, in Hong Kong, of course, they probably can't produce any, but... If it's possible, I work with people to make them as productive as possible. And the other aspect of, uh, in terms of the U.S. is that I think that many politicians and economists would prefer that there be no policy towards agriculture that costs any money. And they make that argument by suggesting that exports are going to be increasing and going to be the source of, of a prosperous agriculture in the future. And they've been doing that for decades now. And the, the data show that even for a crop like soybeans, which those of us that are familiar with agriculture uh, know that exports for soybeans have been increasing in the last few years, but even for a crop like that, world export demand has been increasing faster than our exports, so that our share of the, of the export market has actually been declining. And if you look at even the quantities exported of, of major commodities over time, our exports have really been extremely flat, and uh, our competitors' exports have been increasing at a, at a faster rate. Now, but so I think that people naturally have the idea based on on what they hear and in, in social situations and on the radio and TV that that we're expanding our exports, and that's an important source of demand, and it is, but I think that it's easy to oversell it. And, you know, that's part of the reason why some of our changes have occurred in farm policy, in my view. At one time, we had um, a series of instruments that essentially helped balance supply and demand. Our instruments right now are based on letting the farm communities grow, commercial farmers especially, grow as much as they want, and then if the prices are low, well, then write a check to make up the difference. And to me, that's not the right approach. To me, we ought to try to do what all other industries do, that is balance supply and demand and let the market provide provide the revenue. 
And so whenever I get a chance, why I try to make that pitch. Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, it's really important, I think, for us to understand where our food comes from, how and where it's produced and why. And I think we need the voice of the economist to help us understand this. And I want to just take a break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are speaking with Dr. Daryl Ray, formerly with the University of Tennessee. He's a professor emeritus, and he still writes a column, if you're interested in learning more, for the Agricultural Policy and Analysis Center that had been with the University of Tennessee, and now it's an, an independent center. Well, I'd like to jump a topic for a moment because you said so many interesting things during your talk at Rural Life Day, but there was one piece that struck me, and it had to do with what's driving agricultural research and who defines the questions that we research at land-grant universities. And you had mentioned that when you were new or fresh at a land-grant university, you were told by your department chair that you really don't want to take money for research from industry because that would sway the questions that you were free to ask on your research project. But that seems to have changed quite a bit. And you mentioned somehow we've been convinced that we don't want to pay taxes. So our land-grant universities raise tuition and they become dependent upon private industry to not only fund the research, but also influence the questions. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, because I think it's important. Yes, and it's not just uh, ag econ, but it's agriculture in general, and it's also involved in medicine and and other areas. Yes, when I first started, we were explicitly told that we ought to be careful about where we receive our money, outside money, because there will be a perception that we're not as objective as we might otherwise be. And besides that, we're supposed to be working for society at large and not for private firms or private individuals. And as time has gone on, and we find that funding has not kept up with the cost of running a university or the research endeavors, and so we've kind of moved into the polar extreme. And, you know, to me, that is really something that needs to be understood by society and really needs to be changed because there are so many explicitly, you know, it looks like it's a problem, but it really is a problem because in some cases, if it's a political, and it doesn't have to be the industry itself, it can also be the political environment surrounding it. If they don't like what you're saying, well, then they will in some way cause trouble for you or the university. And I think that there are very few universities that haven't experienced that problem over the last few years. I know ours has. And I think that's, uh, I know, I think it's bad enough to have the perception that it's not, not as good as it ought to be, but it's, it goes beyond that. It, uh, it, it goes to the point of influencing the results that come out of, out of the research, and I think that's wrong. I agree. It's dangerous. And I heard Dr. Sheldon Krimsky speak in Boston at our Dietetic Association conference, and he was talking about how what we really risk losing is knowledge because we are prevented from asking the questions we need to ask, and then we're prevented from publishing findings 
that might be detrimental to the funding arm. That's exactly right. And there's another aspect to it, too, that there's been a change in, in, in what uh, universities use as criteria for promotion and, and, and salaries, too. Part of that is, that, you know, how much money you can bring in. And the other is, is that you're not evaluated by how well you are helping your clientele, and the clientele to me are, are the farmers or ag, ag community, but how many journal articles that you've written. And the journal articles usually are just communications with other professionals in your discipline. And while there is a need for that, I think that we've gone to the polar extreme on that area as well. And we need to get back to the land-grant philosophy where, you know, we are providing education, we're providing research, we're providing extension for the good of society in a particular agriculture and not for other or private and selfish reasons. Mm -hmm. I was concerned because there's been this big push for yield and how the consumer is taught about this need to increase yield. We we need to, you know, nourish, uh, not nourish the world, we need to feed the world. My argument would be we need to nourish the world before we need to feed the world all of these calories that are nutrient poor. But that's probably a topic for another day. But what we've been taught is that some of these genetically engineered crops are absolutely necessary because they're going to increase yield. And yet, during your talk, you had mentioned that you were aware of one incident where Monsanto didn't allow publishing of data because the data showed a reduced yield of the Roundup Ready soybeans, which, of course, they profit from because they patented the seeds and then they also sell the Roundup herbicide. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, and there were some of those were isolated and some were, were more general, but when uh, some of the original Roundup Ready results were were ready for publication at universities such as ours, Monsanto expected the, the yields to be higher than using non-Roundup Ready soybeans, and when they didn't, when it didn't turn out that way, well, then they put pressure on the universities not to publish it or to change the way in which those kinds of trials were reported in general, which would have the effect of uh, a less uh, notoriety to you know to a given a given event and uh, and you know and that's just another example I think of uh, of the, the broader issue of allowing the public to provide the resources so that. We can do the research in a way that is in their best interest and not the best interest of a given uh, a given private concern. Right. It seems like just one more example of how the cost of doing business has been externalized and the benefits are reaped by private industry, and that concerns yeah. me. One of the things that you spoke about, sort of like one of these illusions or myths that we're somehow feeding the world, and you spoke about biofuels versus food. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the kinds of foods we're growing, the kinds of crops we're growing, what those crops are being used for. Are we really feeding the world? No, we're really not because um, most of the kinds of things that, that uh, commercial agriculture produces it's not sold to underdeveloped countries and those that need the food, but some of it is. There's some wheat and some rice that would be in that category. 
But much of, of the other kinds of commodities, like corn and soybeans and cotton and so on, are being sent and used by developed countries, or if they're underdeveloped, they're at the very edge between developed and under, underdeveloped, and really aren't necessarily helping the uh, the hunger problem as much as I think certain organizations and you know certain folks would like to have us believe. And um, you know, I, my view is that we need to help, and we mentioned this a little bit before, but my view is that we need to help the individual countries produce as much of their own food as they can and let uh, World Trade Organization and other um, entities like that uh, change their ways of thinking so that it's not just a matter of expanding trade as the primary objective of, of, of the entity, but the primary objective is to be sure that there's good quantities of nutritious food for everybody in all countries. Exactly. And I think you made a really good point, too, during your presentation where you said, we've got enough food, and there will be enough food for those who can pay for it. Yeah. You know, that's another thing, too, that when the prices went up this about two or three years ago, every agribusiness meeting that you went to, the idea was that we have got to invest in, in GMOs because we have to increase our yields because of the increase in population that we see in the future and the yields that uh, that would be required to satisfy that. And, you know, it was a good opportunity, they thought, to solidify the idea that some of these technologies were required and, 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 and we would be foolish to question it. But the truth is, is that the kind of increase that they've been taught that was talked about to 2050, for example, that was a magic number, and most people that have gone to those will remember that. The increase between now and 2050 is actually less than the increase that we really experienced in that same period of years in the past. Mm. And so, you know, it, and and now the prices have gone down. I think that um, with the increase in prices that we saw earlier, we've had new resources that have come in in this country, new lands, but there's a special opportunity, especially an opportunity for other countries to bring uh, land into production for the same kinds of crops that we're producing and uh, also for them to increase their yields substantially since they're starting from a lower base. And I argue that we probably have as much opportunity for excess capacity in the future as we do for shortages, again, for people who can afford to buy the food. Mm-hmm. With one minute left, do you want to leave our listeners with a with a charge? Well, I think uh, again, I would just reemphasize the need for consumers to go out and, in all ways, demand to know what's in their food, and to press for farmers to pay attention to them and and to pay the extra price if that's necessary, and to convince agriculture that this is the way to go. I think that's a great send-off note. I, too, agree that farmers and consumers are best working together to get the best kind of food quality we possibly can. So I want to thank you. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Daryl Ray, 
Professor Emeritus at the University of Tennessee, agricultural economist, and a weekly author of a column that we will make available to our listeners through the Agricultural Policy and Analysis Center. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia. Dr. Ray, thank you again so much for helping us understand this whole other aspect of our food system. Well, thank you for inviting me to to be on the program.